a lot of the a lot of the focus in the startup tends to be the out outputs, which is like, you know, it's especially in the today's world, which is how much funds you raise, like how big is your revenue growth, how many users you have. But actually, when you are setting up a startup uh, company, really what you should think about is really the inputs, which is do you have good processes to hire good people, retain them, motivate them? Are you thinking hard about the structure of the company? Are you designing an organization? Uh, and boring things like OKRs and so on, right? The performance review system. So um, a lot more focus on what goes into the, into sort of what building the organization, what your organization stands for and so on. And then of course the results matter, but you know, rather than focusing on the outcome there, think hard about the, the inputs to set yourself up for long-term success. Welcome to the MHV podcast. We speak with leading founders, VCs and operators on their journey in Southeast Asia. Learn more at www.monkshill.com. Hi, JJ. Really excited to have you on the MHV podcast. Uh, you are such an experienced operator and founder, and we're excited to be backing a founder like you uh, across Southeast Asia. Uh, so I'd love to have you introduce yourself for everyone out there. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jeremy. Um, so I'm JJ Chai, CEO and co-founder of uh, Rainforest. Um, a bit about my background, uh, prior to starting Rainforest, uh, about 10 years back, uh, probably when most notable, uh, after a short stint in tech and then a slightly longer stint in uh, consulting at McKinsey, uh, joined uh, Airbnb to launch Airbnb the region, Southeast Asia, nine years back when no one knew what alternative travel was uh, or homestays were. And uh, after that, joined the uh, team uh, folks at Carousel uh, about five years back uh, to help scale that up uh, over four years from uh, Singapore-focused classifieds uh, app to a regional classifieds um, leader. Um, spent a year uh, at X to 10X uh, advising founders with the uh, Flipkart alums based on Bangalore at, uh, for a while and then uh, started Rainforest a, a year plus ago. Awesome. And so, you know, we're both formal consultants. I was at Bain, you're at McKinsey, but of course you're way more legit. You actually climbed all the way uh, from an associate oh, all the way to engagement manager. Yeah, went a bit longer. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, <laughs> to a junior partner, right? And so you actually went there, you were a consultant and there you were with that track, right? And so what made you say, hey, as a junior partner, I want to go into Airbnb. I want to go into tech. So what was that transition? Yeah, I, I think like tech was always the starting point for me, which was that uh, my first career out of school was tech. Uh, I'm trained as a software engineer. I wrote code in my early days of my career. The uh, always wanted to get back to that post MBA and doing some understanding on the business side of things. Right, my my early experience was in, in engineering was that you know it, it sort of if you're stuck within the engineering world and people make the wrong decisions around the you know where to apply technology, uh, it's a complete waste of your time. So you are coding stuff that doesn't quite make sense, right? So that was why I did my MBA, went on to went on to do uh, McKinsey, uh, get a sort of big picture big picture of things, uh, and always wanted to come back to a world where you can apply technology where it's, uh, you know has the most impact. And uh, when the Airbnb idea came out was a great one to sort of take something that's already working in the US and Europe and um, convince uh, Asians that like you can actually travel and stay in someone's home and also rent out your home in a different way uh, was an exciting prospect for me. 
And it was a good way to also just move out from advising to actually be in the, be in the hot seat uh, and take up a responsibility either way. You know, what was it like to be going back into tech after, you know, effectively six years away as an advisor uh, and then going back into tech? How was that like for you? I think it was not too different. I mean, like uh, it was also a different type of tech, right? So it was much more on the business side, no longer um, writing uh, PRDs and uh, stuff like that. But having that understanding of how it works on the back end, it's always been helpful uh, throughout tech, uh, throughout the, my career, even though it's on the business side of things. So no big changes. I think what what was sort of most striking was just uh, the lack of uh, infrastructure uh, to support you in a, in a sort of professional services environment, you have you know tons of support, everything from executive assistants to people to help you draw slides to and stuff like that. Um, you know, you just got to get used to uh, figure out a tools, software, technology to to make your work easier, rather than having a boatload of people uh, behind uh, in the back office to support you. Yeah, and there you are, of course, you know, scaling you know Airbnb across APAC as the managing director, right, for Southeast Asia and India. And we know uh, how huge as he has become uh, as a global business, as well as Southeast Asia business. Uh, one interesting thing that a lot of people ask, both founders and operators, is there are so many American companies that are looking for, you know, general managers and regional managers, right? What differentiates between a good company <laughs> to be a GM or managing director for versus one that's not so good for? Any reflections uh, from your experience working at Airbnb? From uh, choosing the company or choosing the, the, the GM? Uh, which side? <laughs> I guess maybe both, right? Because you know, if you choose the right company, you can be a good GM for them. And I guess the right GM helps you the company be successful for the region as well, right? Yeah, I, I, I'd say, I would say some things are hard to solve or fully, fully plan out. Um, there's two different things. I, my, my belief is always sort of like the person and role fit uh, to, to the role, right? And in this specific case, they were looking for someone who had actually spent time in all of Southeast Asia, understood the different cultures, could have had the network in whether Philippines or uh, Thailand, Indonesia and so on, where I had uh, again, by chance, had spent at least a year working with clients in these markets, had a network of people, had done consumer work, understood everything from how people did prepaid uh, phones to sort of, you know, very different infrastructures in each of these markets. Uh, and that was the sort of like key point for Airbnb, which is that like in every, every one of these markets in Southeast Asia, uh, it is a different landscape uh, and having the connections to get started in there was helpful. So that's, that's a bit of the soft where the fit came in. How much do I know about travel? Very little at that point in time, right? So that's where, you know, the organization needs to take a bet around, okay, this guy knows something about consumers in each of these markets, but not so much in travel, can understand the tech side of things. So he, this guy would not sort of be surprised that like uh, the tech team back in SF won't be able to solve overnight flip on new, flip up new uh, payment methods uh, kind of thing, right? So. I think it's about that kind of uh, fit. From a sort of choosing an organization perspective, honestly, at, at any point in time, there's always all these organizations coming across to, to Southeast Asia to set up. They're looking for a GM and a leader. Uh, I think the, the key question is like, what, what do you want from a career perspective? What, what do you want out of it? Which is, uh, there are a lot of organizations now that are sort of set up in Southeast Asia at a very late stage. And that's the typical setup, which is, execute to something that's sort of decided in, in some HQ somewhere, right? Um, the, the nice part of Airbnb at that point in time was it was sort of a free, sort of free play. There was already a very broad mandate 
grow, we have competitors, we have soft copycats, uh, we are behind, right? Your only mandate is sort of like get back leadership on the back of uh, a global platform. We have no, no playbook for you, right? Like go, go figure out. So that was the interesting part for me. Uh, so there's sort of different types of uh, preferences in there. Amazing. And there you are with that no playbook, right? And you were the first employee in Southeast Asia. Uh, any interesting war stories you have uh, in figuring out Southeast Asia? We had some amount of playbook from uh, European counterparts and US counterparts around how to set up uh, each of this. I think the biggest thing that we sort of learned back then was just to sort of focus on the right level of granularity. We sort of started off sort of, we needed to sort of get everyone to use Airbnb, or particularly on the hosting side, right, uh, across Southeast Asia. But actually you quickly sort of double click that and actually you figure out the first few areas that you need to solve are really around where uh, there is already latent demand or you sort of can see the demand. So where the searches are, it was Bali, it was uh, Phuket, it was vacation rental uh, locations across uh, across the whole uh, region. And while actually those were, um, you know, there was sort of relatively good supply in some of those places, the quality wasn't there and there's sort of not enough sort of understanding of how to use Airbnb. So a lot of efforts was actually in the early days was quite simple around focusing on these few wins and learning to also let some of the other lower priority uh, cities or destinations suffer a little bit, but focus on a few wins first and then sort of build up the rest, right? So um, it was uh, really that piece and also, and also being clear about like what worked well from an Airbnb perspective, right? Because there were sort of local competitors that were doing things differently. They were sort of building up in cities a lot more or doing things slightly differently. Uh, but not not focusing too much on that and focusing on actually what our users and Airbnb want, the people in Europe, in US, they were searching for these things and solving from that and then growing out of that rather than uh, being too fixated about what, what you know, the other players were doing. And there you decided to join you know, Carousel, right? And become a VP, SVP uh, for growth strategy over you know, four years. Could you tell and share more about that story to join Carousel and what that was like? No, oh, Carousel was a great story. I had met them uh, very early on uh, as part of uh, during my Airbnb days. You know, we had common uh, common parent investors and so they were sort of asking about community building and so on. Um, uh, my my first impression was that like, hey, this is a this is a soft problem. My generation solved this with this app called uh, or, or a website called eBay. Uh, so I was trying to understand what exactly changed here, uh, but quickly quickly realized uh, after using it myself that like okay you know the the sort of web to uh, mobile thing obviously now on hindsight is super obvious, but changed everything around how you interact and what was available for you to buy and sell. So having met them uh, a year later on, they sort of said, uh, they sort of raised the Series B and uh, needed to expand uh, regionally as, as well as sort of figure out the uh, revenue generating business model behind the uh, behind the app. There are lots of users, but sort of still, still pre revenue, and so I took on the opportunity. I had uh, enough uh, late night calls to sort of US time zones and. Uh, at that point in time, Airbnb was a lot larger and a lot more centralized. So decisions start, started making, becoming made uh, out of HQ, which is the right thing to do in a global travel platform. Uh, so I wanted a new adventure and uh, you know, this one was a great one. The backstory of, for, for Carousel is always that you know, you've heard these stories around parents scolding their kids uh, for becoming an entrepreneur. Uh, and you know, when I heard about this from them, I was like, Quite, quite determined to sort of uh, help make it a success so that uh, future kids uh, don't get scolded, right? Like we want 
for me, the main thing was how do we sort of spend some time here so that you know future generations can sort of uh, of uh, graduates uh, or even dropouts can just start a company and not get scolded by by their parents. I think that's really one of, uh, one of the sort of underlying motivations as well. Uh, so it was a fun journey uh, joining them. Tough, uh, I would say. Uh, a very different uh, setup than sort of Airbnb and like you know the the market size in the US and so on to buffer a lot of things. Growing out of Singapore is always a bit of a tricky piece. So being great for for users in uh, Singapore market and then growing to the rest of Southeast Asia, it's always a bit trickier given the differences from here and then you go to Indonesia is completely different. Yeah, yeah, amazing. When you say tricky. For those, I mean, obviously going to ask that question when they hear you say tricky. What's one piece of advice for people who are growing out of Singapore? What's one thing you've learned about growing out of Singapore, whatever that phrase means to you? I, so I have a, you know, even in my own personal angel investing thing, I, I try very, very much to sort of discourage uh, founders who are trying to build for Singapore first. Uh, it's a very small market uh, in the global scheme of things. And even if you crack it, like, you know, Singaporeans love your product. Uh, it's very hard to sort of make that work in the next market because the uh, density, the uh, income levels, the kind of phones that you use, everything changes by by a, a drastic amount. This is not this is not transplanting from SF to Texas, Austin uh, in the US. This is uh, a completely different thing. So uh, I think the starting point is to the extent you can start regional or even better start global, uh, do it. Obviously, there's advantages to sort of start in Singapore for certain categories, uh, particularly those sort of, you know, uh, new energy, water and stuff like that. But like for, for software, my preference is that you start, you know, start regional or start global rather than just a Singapore solution. Awesome. Well, that's a great set of learnings for uh, knowledge that you just dropped there. Uh, and then there you, you've quickly went on to uh, go to X to 10X uh, to help startups in Southeast Asia scale up. What were some of the key learnings and advice that you were giving out uh, to help people scale up for that phase? Well, I, I found myself learning a lot from the Exotanic team, right? So they had scaled up Flipkart, uh, Full Decacorn, and and not just that, right? They were sort of very deliberate about uh, what were the sort of ingredients in the scaling journey that they themselves, on, on hindsight, looked back and thought, you know, should have been uh, uh, implemented at uh, Flipkart early on. And uh, the way they put it was sort of, these are the things that we, if we, if we had known, right, would have been very different, uh, would have been a very different battle with Amazon in India. Yeah, and, and when I reflected on those learnings, was also very true for the scale-up journey at Carousel and to some extent at Airbnb as well, which is a lot of the, a lot of the focus in the startup tends to be the out outputs, which is like, you know, it's, especially in the today's world, which is how much funds you raise, like how big is your revenue growth, how many users you have. But actually, when you are setting up a startup uh, or company, really what you should think about is really the inputs, which is do you have good processes to hire good people, retain them, motivate them? Are you thinking hard about the structure of the company? Are you designing an organization? Uh, and boring things like OKRs and so on, right? The performance review system. So um, a lot more focus on what goes into the, into sort of what building the organization, what your organization stands for and so on. And then of course the results matter, but you know, rather than focusing on the outcome there, think hard about the, the inputs to set yourself up for long-term success. Amazing. And after all this experience and ex executive in multiple you know, now name brand startups, uh, you know, uh, you've decided to become a founder. So why after all this time you decided, I want to found 
in the e-commerce space, helping e-commerce entrepreneurs fulfill their brand's potential. So why now become a founder? Yeah, I think, you know, in every step of uh, how I've sort of done things, I've found that the, the, the risk-reward profile for taking more risk has been, uh, you know, either by luck or, or, uh, or not, right, uh, has been uh, sort of beneficial uh, to me. And my, my thinking has been that, like, the uh, perceived risk of taking, like, high risk sometimes is sort of not, not real, right? So, uh, and what, what more high risk than sort of starting, uh, starting everything from scratch? And um, to sort of mitigate that, of course, you know, I had to sort of wait for an idea and something that I could actually be well suited for. And when this idea came around, the idea of sort of taking something that's already working, it's a brand that someone has actually created, there's users behind it, and then scaling it up uh, appealed to me. This was, again, very, very similar to what I had done uh, in Carousel to some extent and to Airbnb to, to some extent, proven in some form, and then sort of scaling it up. Uh, and the other piece was really around whether I had the belief around the, the why now. Uh, why now for, for this particular uh, model? And what, when I looked around, uh, and this was in the midst of COVID already, everyone was, you know, at least to me, felt like a lot of people were sort of creating, uh, could create their own brands. Everything from as simple as sort of an Instagram shop selling cookies because this is lockdown and nothing else to do, you bake and then you, you, don't, you don't want to bake for yourself, you bake for everyone, to sort of you know, ordering small batches of products from, from China and then selling on Instagram or, or on e-commerce sites was real. Like it, the cost and uh, the barriers to actually create your own brand has completely changed and therefore creating this sort of uh, explosion of micro brands. But all of them also having the same problem, which is not everyone becomes the next uh, Warby Parker or Allbirds uh, brand. Some of them get stuck. Some of them don't really want to hire people or sort of build a company around it and need an exit. So, so that was sort of the, the why now, the, the why me piece was always around sort of, okay, so I've seen some of this scaling up before uh, and uh, was uh, super interesting. And then the third piece personally was thinking about how do I sort of ratchet up risk one more level. I'm right? going from big co to, you know, uh, global consulting firms to sort of uh, emerging startups, well-funded to smaller funded startups to now, okay, what's the most, you think it most extreme, what's the most risky way you can do it? Uh, setting up yourself uh, and get going. I love you kind of being very clear about your personal framework, about your personal founder dash problem fit and being comfortable with that risk on one side. And also I think, you know, like you said, the fact that you actually are a perfect fit for helping, you know, e-commerce uh, brands and solopreneurs also build out what they want to build as well. So, you know, one thing that we talked about before was, you know, that you've learned a lot from speaking with hundreds of them, right, over the years in terms of what they want and what they want to build. So could you share a little bit more about those insights that you've learned along the way? Yeah, um, in speaking to all, all these sort of uh, micro-entrepreneurs, I think, of their brands, um, what I've found is that, like, the uh, extreme breadth of it, right? It, my, my initial thinking was uh, these are hardcore sort of uh, um, hustlers, right? Which is people who sort of, okay, I'm going to sort of create a business. Uh, in the same way you sort of think about sort of traditional businesses, people sort of sell things and so on. Um, but you actually see a very big variety, everything from sort of housewives who had extra time and then they said like, hey, I'm going to sort of create this kitchen product. And suddenly it's sort of start, they started selling a million dollars of it a year, uh, all the way down to sort of uh, uh, side gigs, people who are working in large organizations, right? Literally uh, Facebook, Google, Fang type companies and doing something on the site. Again, uh, building up a million dollars of sales on the site there. So the, the variety of type of entrepreneurs was uh, staggering. 
right? So all all shapes and sizes, ages and so on. Uh, I even spoke to one uh, uh, 80, 82 year old uh, grandma uh, who did a stationery brand. She was selling she was selling high end premium stationery uh, uh, online, uh, which was amazing. So so for me that was one staggering piece, which is. No, it's really soft, really quite uh, flat in the sense that anyone can actually come, come and try. Um, second piece of it was really around the fact that uh, it was actually so easy, uh, as in so not easy to sort of be successful, but so easy to get started, right? So there are different levels of it. Uh, and the sort of biggest hurdle was always the sort of nudge, right? Like, why, why do you start was always, my, it's always one of the questions I ask. Um, you know, everything from sort of, you know, oh, I had a lot of time to sort of like, I had this problem, I couldn't find it on Amazon, I couldn't find it online for this specific problem. Um, and then just the impetus from that to sort of taking the first step, which is to make that first order of product and try it out, so it gets everything going uh, from there. Yeah, and then, and then the, the third piece is that the, the problems at the sort of small scale level of sort of SME entrepreneurs or solopreneurs is real, which is there's actually very little uh, things are changing now, but there's actually very little avenues for finding working capital to sort of scale up the business. Uh, you know, very little resources and not easy to sort of find good people. When, when you're sort of a solo entrepreneur, you know, trying to hire someone is you know, like we, we talk about career stability and next steps. So when working for a solo entrepreneur, it's hard to hard to find that and see that. So one of the biggest things they struggle on with is. You know what? I tried scaling, scaling my company. I hired these two people, but you know what? Before before long, they, they move on to other things. I I can't build up on it, right? So um, that scaling up issue is is real as well for for these uh, solo entrepreneurs, and they, they tend to sort of like the zero to one, starting something new uh, aspect of it. Amazing, and one interesting aspect of course is that you know you are providing that aspect of like mid-sized exits right you know that level of opportunity uh, and upside for them as well uh, on top of these you know conversations in terms of that you know uh, pathways as well could you share a little bit more about what that process looks like from their side yeah um so you know there's just two two different general uh groups right those who will very clearly want to exit their business, which is the idea sort of decided I've done six years of this. Uh, I actually, you know, I actually don't want to live my life doing, uh, you know, kitchen lemon squeezers or products, kitchen products. Uh, this is done. I want to move on to my next uh, passion products or some some change in uh, life circumstances that uh, once makes them want to exit. In this kind of situations, they sort of they sort of would look for uh, different exit opportunities uh, across globally, actually, uh, especially if they're doing a, a, a cross-border e-commerce brand. Um, and then they'll they'll come to us and ask for a, ask for evaluation around uh, their business. So um, from the valuation stage, if they agree to solve the valuation stage, we need to, we need about forty eight hours or so with a certain amount of information. We give them an indicative valuation, and then we go into a, a thirty to forty five days due diligence to make sure everything's as uh, as expected. After which we sort of sign a an agreement to transfer the assets to uh, to us, and we do the we do the transaction uh, from there. And the payout is everything from uh, some amount of upfront payout, some amount earnouts uh, over the next two years as well as we as we regrow the brand and run the brand uh, in there. And then this sort of uh, I talk about the second group. The second group are those who are not not really motivated to sell yet. Uh, usually those conversations are typically around setting up for uh, understanding the process. Just getting to know things uh, very simply, and then 
you know, starting the early conversations around like, hey, what will you do if Sotek over our brand? Like, you know, what does it mean? Um, and in those in those conversations, we tend to be just helpful in general to the business. Not not there's no acquisitions, there's no deal, deal structuring. We we talk about what we know about uh, cross borders, and we're we're happy to share uh, in those situations. Amazing. I think you're really giving people just the option, right? Because they can always continue to continue working on their own brand themselves or the option to work with you, right? And Rainforest to, uh, to get options. Yeah. And, and remember, I, my thing around entrepreneurs is like, you know, A, my belief is like, it should be a path that's normalized a lot more. It's gotten gotten a long way, right? In any form, right? You don't have to create the next carousel, right? You're creating a small business. It should be a normal form. And I would love for these guys to go and you know raise venture capital or make it a billion dollar business. So you know if that's the default path, shh, please do go ahead and we we'll, we'll, we can where we can be helpful, we want to be helpful, right? Uh, the exit is just an additional option for them. Uh, and uh, by no means am I out there to try to self convince everyone to sell their business to us. That's not the thing. Uh, we like to sort of play a role such that like if you set up your own business, just know that like we're here in the e-commerce world. There's some exit uh, option for you. And one thing, you know, obviously with all the experience as well is that uh, you've also been able to do all of that. And what is the macro trends, I think, powering all of this from your perspective? Um, is it like uh, e-commerce is going up in Southeast Asia? Is it cross-border? What is it that really is, you know, fueling you think this from the super cycle or trend from your side? Yeah, I mean, uh, the analogy I, I always talk about is the is the sort of like app store analogy. Right? In the past, to do software and distribute software, you needed to be Microsoft. You needed to get your software into boxes, imprint CDs, and you need distribution, uh, big time distribution into you know uh, shops to sort of people to, to buy it. So the scale at which you need to do this is much larger. Uh, in the same way today, right? Like what's what's lowered the barriers of it uh, for for this is A, you have everything on the marketing side of things. With $10 of marketing, you can exactly target someone to sort of buy your product. Also talk about your product. You don't even need to pay for it. You can earn, earn sort of like a, a distribution uh, online. Um, the supply chain side of things has changed a lot. It used to be very, you know, much larger uh, quantities to order and manufacture products. You can now do this at a much smaller scale. Uh, obviously, today's world, moving things around is a bit harder than uh, it, it was just a year ago, but it's really much easier than uh, you know, five, 10 years ago in terms of uh, moving goods around and finding someone to sort everything out from production, inspection, quality, tariffs, everything. Uh, you can do it on sitting here in Singapore, you can do this uh, cross-border. Um, and then the third piece is that the uh, consumer willingness to try new things is 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 real, right? Which is there used to be a, a time where people would just buy the standard brands, and you know you need you need some uh, a mega superstar a sports star to be on TV before you saw. Yeah, I trust this brand. It's changed. It's now your you know neighborhood or your soft influencer that you follow or your soft uh, fellow fitness guy on uh, Instagram. So. What builds trust and what builds a brand has changed as well. So, so the combination of these three things of new channels to reach consumers, what 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 creates trust and brand uh, for the consumer, the willingness to try new things at a different scale, and the barriers to sort of create uh, and make new products has totally changed, and the scale that we should do it uh, has 
created this super cycle of uh, of micro brands really and you know there are some researchers research that talks about how much of fmcg in the next like five to ten years will be captured by your big players versus uh, the sort of emerging players most of the growth actually almost all the growth is actually coming from new brands right versus the incumbents amazing that's a great insight actually well uh that means there's a lot of exciting growth that's going to be coming ahead uh on that note i think one interesting thing is that you've also kind of gone through this whole experience where you've been executive watching founders fundraise and now you're a founder who has recently gone through uh, the fundraising process and a common topic that founders have asked us to share <laughs> is about fundraising and so one thing that we've chosen to ask you know our founders to talk about is uh, about your fundraising process at a high level, not you know, in terms of the process, but like any advice that you have in terms of like, how did you go about thinking about it? What did you learn from that process? So any thoughts or reflections about that whole process and from your perspective? Yeah, very much so. I, I think, look, uh, and, and, and I, I, also, I also speak from this from perspective of having sort of angel investor and talking to some of my, the founders I angel invest into. Uh, realizing that for myself, because I've been in the industry for so long, I had I have a bit more privilege around the fact that like I know the network itself. There is some level of uh, trust, so it it is definitely easier on my end. But I I, I started from the principle around um, who do I want as partners uh, along the journey, right? So who what kind of partners do do I need along the journey? Uh, obviously, there's of the soft capital uh, considerations and so on, but we have a short list around like what what type what's the considerations around the, the partners the, to, to have have on board and um very clearly it was really around people who are knew the space very much right we um would like to have people who've been operators before again this is my own preference this is also what i tell uh, my my angel investment which is like look i'm an operator and a founder i understand what it means to, to be in your shoes uh, I think that goes a long way. People will understand what it means to be in your shoes around not everything is a linear thing, it's soft, you know, there are gonna be hiccups and they'll when when push comes to shove or time when times are tough, they'll hunker down and help you sort of get through that versus sort of asking, you know, okay, when do you solve it kind of thing, right? Like uh, it's always easy to be the board member that sort of points out uh, you know backseat and say like, yeah, that that, sh that should be higher and you should do more. <laughs> but but what? Right? Like uh, so that's that's really the the, the second piece. Um, and then the third piece there is like is really the sort of signaling and reputation as well, right? Which is like there are there are there are funds also investors out there who just invest in anything out there, right? Like uh, it's a very different strategy, right? So um, having having the ones that sort of have a bit of reputation around being uh, particular and sort of uh, deliberate about their investments helps for the next round uh, uh, investments as well. So so those are really really the three things and. Uh, you know, when it comes to Monk's Hill side of things, had met Koi long time back from my, uh, even during my Airbnb days, uh, when I was at, actually Airbnb as well, I also met Peng, right, where, uh, you know, I uh, had some uh, discussions with him back then. So, always knew, known uh, Monk's Hill as the, the operator-led, uh, or former founder-led fund, and that was really one of the big big things as of, uh, you know, got it high on our list for us. And, you know, obviously one of the interesting things you said is, you know, there's something that you advise other founders to think through. What would be the, I guess, contrary, you know, sentiment, I guess, or what yeah, would be okay, the yeah. common sentiment to that? Because it sounds like you're contrasting yourself to that, you know, view. So what would the contrary view of that be? Yeah. 
But the contrary one is off, like you know, the contrary one is off, like uh, to chase valuations. Right? I know, I know, it's off crazy, and you soft when a founder you think about dilution here and there, uh, or you or you don't talk, don't think about dilution the first round, and then when you go to the second round, you think it's actually quite quite dilutive. But um, my 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 general principle is to like uh, you know is to, to really think hard about like uh, the the five ten year horizon. Right and and think of it as a multiple uh multi multi stage game uh to it, and that uh trying to be fixated in in that round and that valuation is really the wrong game to play. Right, so take it as of you play three steps forward. What do you need to set yourself up for the next three years and the next three fundraise, and and, and being in the best position for it is the starting point and. When you sort of put that, put yourself in that kind of mindset, maximizing valuation is not the is in that round is typically not the necessarily the best path. Yeah. I think that's interesting, right? Because you know when you talk about that multi stage over that thing, because my reflection as a founder who's also fundraised, you know, seed Series A is that you know the real enemy is not each other; it's really the. 39 out of 40 chance of failure, right? Exactly. <laughs> you know? yeah. That's the so you know the VC and the founder has to really work together to minimize the chance of failure and to exactly. maximize the chances of success together. Uh, and that's where the growing the pie is actually is. Versus um, if a VC just brings capital, then the problem is you maintain the the odds of failure the, and the odds of success. Uh, which is, you know, not bad. I mean, you still maintain your ownership, but you didn't change the odds. Yeah, I, I would I would go even further than that, right? Like my belief in the uh, ecosystem in Southeast Asia is that like, it's so immature that there are actually another group of investors that actually not only sort of uh, keep it stable, but actually decreases your odds because they are just bad, uh, bad board members or sort of not distracts you from the distracts you from the actually executing right like uh, uh you know there's sort of three levels for me sort of like adding value and sort of like helping uh, solve problems and so on uh neutral fine that's capital uh i think you sort of do a poll uh, honest poll around like uh, uh experienced founders across the region there's also this category down there which is like you know they sort of uh, press you to press you to optimize for valuations. Help them with their markups on their sort of uh, MOICs and so on to look good. Da da da. Um, not really thinking about the fundamentals of the business, which is hey, you need to create good products for consumers and that gross valuation. Not playing the valuation game to markup and look like a great investor. I, I think uh, there is that group and it still exists in this part of the world. Um, ho- hopefully, there's less of them over time. Yeah, there's a lot of truth there. And I think one interesting aspect about that is, you know, over time, well, my confidence actually is that, you know, I think the system as it matures, you know, information asymmetry will drop over time, uh, you know, reputational, you know, tends to spread, you know, founders talk to each other, VCs talk to each other, long game. Yeah, it's a long game. So you can play the short game, uh, the, those that play the long game will, will benefit in a long run. And uh, yes, I, I do believe that as well. Yeah, this that a long game always takes a long time yeah. to happen. I think so. Yeah. That's the frustrating thing yeah. for everybody, right? It's like, oh, there's know. always the quick, there's always the quick wins, and then sort of uh, harder. But like, I think staying on the long, long term path uh, uh, will play out. It's just there is always that sort of uh, more frustrating period at any one point in time. Yeah, awesome. Uh, and on that note, I love to kind of like paraphrase. I think the three big themes that I got from this entire podcast and to wrap things up here. The first, of course, thank you so much for sharing your learnings 
from you know being a product manager in tech world to being a junior partner at McKinsey advising technology companies to choosing to be you know the first employee in Southeast Asia and a GM for Airbnb in Southeast Asia uh, to Carousel as an executive to X to 10x uh, and you know just as so many learnings and knowledge to just drop knowledge, you know, just insight after insight at each stage. So I'm sure it must be very helpful to lots of people along the way. And then secondly, of course, we did a very quick uh, set of discussions about why you chose uh, to be a founder and helping partner and growing value for e-commerce brands in two aspects. I think the first, of course, about how and why now is the right time uh, for you to choose to be a founder and bring all that you've learned to the field. And on the other side, of course, is that what you've learned from speaking to hundreds of e-commerce entrepreneurs uh, and opportunity to help give them the optionality, uh, the liquidity and the growth opportunity uh, that you're able to bring with your own skills. So this amazing uh, partnership that you have there. And lastly, thank you so much for also sharing your own experience as a founder and executive around, uh, I think the multi-stage you know, VC selection, right? You know, being very picky, uh, having high standards uh, in terms of choosing the right VC to have on board in terms of adding value and creating value for the company over multiple stages uh, in the future uh, and fighting off the common enemy, which is the odds of failure exactly. <laughs> slash increasing the total actual value of the company over the next few years. And of course, our joint aspiration for the Southeast Asia ecosystem over the long term as well. So uh, thank you so much, JJ, for coming on the MHV podcast. Thanks, Jeremy. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the MHV podcast, please share this episode with your friends and colleagues. Go to www.monkshill.com for more founders' journeys, company-building advice, and insights into regional tech trends.